Welcome to Been There, Done That, a pandemic survival podcast. In this show, we'll be talking to some real-life experts on how to get through this time filled with unexpected changes, challenges, and maybe even feelings of hopelessness. And those experts are everyday people like you and me. Turns out we may be more prepared for this moment than we realize. So let's get started and see what we can relearn. So please join me now in welcoming to our show today, Aaron. Aaron, thank you so much for being with us today. What's it like right now in Los Angeles, California? Because currently our weather here in Reno is um, snowy with a side of rain with a sprinkle of sunshine from time to time. We have a, a nice, a breezy, sunny afternoon here in Los Angeles. Uh, Thank you very the, much for that, Erin. Uh, we hate to <laughs> really stick to talking about sad things. And so we're going to move on. <laughs> say it was sunny and warm. It is sunny and warm and it feels really unusual because the sky has just opened up and there's like the clouds have been really remarkable lately because we've come off of like almost three weeks straight of rain, which is very unusual for Los Angeles. It has rained daily, which has felt incredibly apocalyptic in the last few weeks. Um, and I think the pollution seems to have lifted because you can see a, a crispness in the sky that I don't remember seeing in Los Angeles. I, I've lived in Los Angeles for 16 years. Like it's a crisp, crisp, sunny day. Is it that um, the clouds are more remarkable right now because of the clouds? Or are the clouds remarkable right now because of your perspective on the world and life right now in the pandemic? Are you in like uber gratitude? Therefore, <laughs> hey, clouds, I know I see you every day, but look at you today shining so bright. Is it is it you or is it the clouds? You know, it's a little unclear because I have had so little outside time. I've sat in the backyard a little bit, but I haven't, you know, last night I went for a walk and today I went for a walk and it's like maybe the third time I've been out of the house in two weeks, I guess. Um, the clouds have a, a particular definition to them and a, a layered depth that we don't always get. Um, and it could be because it just rained, could be because there's no cars on the road, it just rained and all of the pollution cleared out. And now, or it could be I just haven't seen enough of the outside world. I'm like, oh, it's still there. Got it. Got it. All right. Let's let's stay here uh, for just a second and turn it around a little bit. Could you describe briefly for us listening what your sort of regular day-to-day -day routine and life was like before the COVID-19 pandemic really became what we know it to be right now and what you're doing now, if it is at all different in any way, shape, or form. So what was it like before and what is it like now really highlighting uh, the differences, if you don't mind? Um. Well, I am an artist, uh, which means I have 12 jobs. Uh, so a lot of my jobs are freelance jobs or self-employed. I'm a private chef as well. So uh, I have a number of clients that I cook for and I do catering events. 
Um, and then I also uh, freelance for uh, some other organizations, which means I end up working from home a lot. I cook in my home. Uh, I think, you know, a usual week, Mondays, I cook for the, uh, the, my clients. And on Sundays, I'll go to the farmer's market. Monday morning, I'll, I'll go to either the Asian market uh, or just a, a quick market nearby. And then I cook all day. And then throughout the week, you know, I deliver all the food in the evening. And then throughout the week, the clients eat uh, what I've made them for the whole week. And, uh, and then I spend the rest of the week, you know, doing all my other work, video projects and uh, uh, community trainings and things like that. Um, Can you show what, what would you say is, is the connection here? Because um, if I, you know, didn't know you right now, I would hear what you're saying your life was like and um, video training, uh, food, art. Are you like a jack of all trades or is there an umbrella to all of this? How is the food art? How is the training related to food? How do all these things come together? What do they have in common other than they involve you? Mm. Well, uh, I would say I identify as a conceptual performance artist and the medium I work with is food. And as you all know, it's very lucrative being an artist. Um, so I uh, use those. Wait, wait, wait. Let's give our listeners arenas. a moment to laugh. Could you say oh, that again? Yes. <laughs> As you all know, being an artist is very lucrative. <laughs> um, so it offers me time. <laughs> okay. You were saying. Uh, it, it, uh, I have to use the skills that I have. Uh, in order to earn money in other ways. I also spent, you know, 25 years as a community organizer and as a trainer. And so, um, you know, these are the skills that I have, you know, as an artist, I do video work. Um, so how can I use those in service of organizations and, and causes that I care about? Um, but also so I can, you know, pay my rent because no one's paying for that experiential dinner that explores the lives of refugees. <laughs> um, I mean, some people will pay for it, but, you know, it's not going to pay the rent. Got it. Got it. <laughs> so um, what is your life like now? We got a sense of, of who you are in the day to day, got a sense of, you know, what were things like before the pandemic? Um, what what has changed? Anything? Everything's the same. You're still cooking, still making art, still doing trainings. Nothing has changed. What pandemic? Everything has changed. Uh, I, as soon as things started to go a little sideways, um, all of my catering gigs got canceled. So uh, I had two catering events that were coming up in the month of March, you know, fundraiser, you know, dinner for 50 people, um, which would have paid me quite a bit. And then I generally, I also hire a sous chef and a, and a server to help me the day of um, my trainings. I was supposed to go do a training in Austin this week that got postponed. And, um, and so really all of my, future income has been canceled. Um, 
my clients, uh, very sweet and understanding of my, my private chef clients actually paid me last week, even though I couldn't bring them food. Um, and I'm kind of trying Was to that helpful? figure out, oh my gosh, if they didn't pay me, I wouldn't be able to pay my rent this next week. Like there's, you know, it's, so your, you know, your weekly regular clients, which sustain you financially, paid you last week for a service that you cannot provide to them right now, yeah. knowing that, yeah. and that has helped you, will they continue to do that? And can you count on that? I don't know. And I don't know if I feel comfortable expecting that, you know, like, I feel like if people have that kind of flexibility, then by all means they should. But I already feel like a debt, not just of gratitude, but like an actual debt. Like I'm going to have to throw so many dinner parties for them when this is over or like just feed them in perpetuity because I feel like. Do you think that's their expectation of you? No, it's not. And they all understand, um, you know, I think, you know, it's really changed the way that people relate to, to even food and how they get food, you know, like everybody who's out of a job right now, like the entire restaurant industry is decimated, all tipped workers, front of the house, servers, they all lost their jobs this week. Like people switching to, to, um, you know, uh, delivery or like takeout means that they let go 75% of their staff operate on a skeleton staff and then try to keep serving people, you know, like um, the, the, the dinner, the catering dinner that I had this week, she asked if she could give me an advance, even though the dinner's postponed. And I thought, well, you know, I still have to buy the food and make the food later whenever the event is going to be. But I know that my sous chef is in a worse place than I am. So I said, why don't you just give me 200 bucks advance and I will give that to my sous chef because he was planning to work that day. And I know that all of his catering gigs and all of his events that he works got canceled and he has had no income in the last two weeks at all. And I knew I still had a couple gigs coming in that haven't paid me yet. So I was like, dude, take it, you know? And for me, like, I mean, he cried and I cried because I felt so it's like $200. It's not a lot of money. It's not, but that's a third of his rent. And, you know, I know that, um, if I, I don't, most of us don't have a cushion. I don't have a cushion. I, I think a lot of people who work as artists who work in the gig economy, who are working in the food industry, like if you have a catering business or a restaurant, your margins are so slim and, and really the most expensive thing that you pay for is labor. And I insist on paying people a fair wage. I pay all of, all of the people who work with me at least 20 bucks an hour. And, and I charge people that too, because that's what people should get paid to work a 12 hour day to make sure that you get fed. Um, but none of us have any savings, you know, you know, what, what are you going to save? It, it occurred to me that, um, you know, food is so central to 
everyone's worst moments right now, food and shelter, food and shelter and health, food, shelter, health. What seem like very basic things, and when you don't have them, seem like such easy answers to a problem. But we are so complicated by the means in which we have determined how you get food, right? Like there was a time, and we've done a lot of work, I think, in the last decade or two to return to the time where the food came from our backyard, came from the local farm down the street, came yeah. from um, a farmer's market type situation, came from a barter and trade. Oh, I have some extra eggs. Who needs them? Great. Oh, I have access to Netflix. You need it, right? And now you are a private chef for families, giving them food for their entire week. You are uh, a private chef that someone could hire for a catered event. And so you've got that higher level of how people can access food. That's Mm -hmm. very particular. But then we also have you needing to use the money you get for providing food for others to provide food for yourself which requires you to go to the store and you have a sous chef who also needs food to be, you you see what I'm saying? So the chain is not based on, I have food, you have food. It's based on, I make you food. You give me money. I take that money to buy my food. Like there are so many levels and barriers to us being able to access our needs. I need safety and health. These are all the barriers to get it. I need a home. Here are all the barriers to that. Um, And it has put us in a position where ultimately the ultimate barrier in so many different ways is based on salary and cost of living and those two things not matching to the point where you talk about who has a cushion. And, you know, we have this idea in the States that um, anybody who works has a place to lay their head and has some food in the refrigerator is middle class. Newsflash, that is not middle class. Middle (laughs) class, middle class. Here's the definition that I've really been thinking about for middle class. You are middle class if you have at least three months worth of salary in savings. Mm -hmm. And the majority of Americans do not. So don't tell me that, oh, we're working for the middle class. No, you're not. Because the middle class is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking to the point where honestly, I don't actually believe that it exists anymore. And so how are we going to help the working class right now moving forward? Because after this, that's all so many of us are going to be. Because if you did have that cushion, if you do have that cushion, chances are you won't after this, right? Because that's where all that cushion is going to go to. So are you familiar with um, different kinds of economies? Uh, Sure. So what do you mean? Well, turns out there's a product economy, Mm. a service economy, Mm -hmm. and an experience economy. There's others, but let's talk about those three for a second. So product, coffee beans, Mm -hmm. In a bag, you go, you buy the coffee beans in a bag. It's a product service. You go someplace like a coffee shop and say, I'd like to order a cup of coffee, not the best coffee, not those amazing coffee, but it's those beans as coffee. An experience economy is like 
Starbucks or your local coffee shop that has, you know, the amazing barista that wants to know your name and how your day is going, that allows you to say, is that whole milk, oat, uh, almond? Uh, and, and then calls out your name, maybe has great chairs and couches, maybe has wonderful music in the background, and you go there for the experience. And right now, what is being hardest hit by the pandemic is the experience economy. Because the experience economy is based on bringing people and bodies in proximity together. Mm-hmm. And so what you provide is a service. Mm-hmm. Food, you make something out of it, you deliver it, you give it to folks. But that service is also being hit. So I just explained three economies, two out of the three, just mm-hmm. Gone. not the same anymore. Mm-hmm. What does that leave you with? What are you thinking about doing? What, what are you worried about? Well, I, I'm not sure how to, how to, I mean, I don't, as a conceptual artist, for example, I've never had a product to sell, right? Like people are always like, So what, you know, like, how do you get represented by a gallery? How does your work get shown in the art world? Like, you know, I I don't, no one can buy my painting. You can't, you know, like there's nothing to buy. I don't paint. But if I did, it would be a conceptual project anyway. So, But because (laughs) yours is food based, people consume it. Yeah. So I don't have an object that people hold on to. What I do as an artist is, is really rooted in that experience, right? And I create an experience that people are able to think differently about the world that they live in. And what's challenging right now is so much of my work is based on people experiencing it in proximity in person, right? Like I, you know, I create work that creates an experience for people so for example, I have this piece called Sugar Rebels and it sort of imagines this post-apocalyptic world where there's no more food and- uh, This is an imagined world that you made up before. Ima- this is an imagined world Got that you made it. up before. Um, you know, it, it, it's premised on the idea that Donald Trump wins the election and then stages a coup and doesn't believe in climate change and then climate change happens. And at this point, there's no food. And that follows a group of underground queer and trans people of color who are leading a rebellion. And what they're doing, uh, because the economy is now set up in a way that sugar is the only nutritional delivery mechanism, right? All left, the only thing left to eat is sugar. And the state owns the plantations that makes the sugar and enslaves people of color, women, immigrants, refugees. And so this rebel group, takes sugar and flavors it so that people will remember what food tasted like. So they'll join the revolution to overthrow the state. In this performance, people commit to the resistance by writing what they'll do in the resistance. We hang it on our wall of resistance and in return, they get a sweet treat. And I make cotton candy in like 50 different flavors. And the idea of this performance is to say, here's the worst thing that could ever possibly happen And how do we look at something like that in the distant future, in the present, to think about how we change our behavior and how we think about the world that we live in? Um, And 
you know, I create these little installations that's like a little rebel underground lair and people get to come and have cotton candy and it's, it's fun, okay. but it's supposed to be the future. And how do you, well, it was, it was, it was the future when you did this a couple of years ago, yes. but here's, here's, here's what, um, here's what's really compelling about this, this art that you're describing it, it's power lies in memory in the interaction and it, it also lies in the interaction right like i do social practice yes. work where people yes. are engaging with each other yes but bear with me the okay. real sort of like uh core most meaningful to me part of this artwork is that it's about a memory and mm -hmm. and literally asking folks to consume something to mm -hmm. try to call to memory a world that either is so distant their minds or that they've never experienced to incentivize them to not be okay with what is, but to be given the opportunity to go back to what was and to what maybe should be. Mm -hmm. And so with that in mind, I need to ask you another question. Sure. Does this particular COVID-19 pandemic moment feel familiar to you at all? In other words, have there been other times in your life where you've had to change the way you got food on your own table, how you lived your day-to-day -day life, minute to minute? It could be as simple as, yes, once I had a really bad cold and it lasted like two weeks, or... I once had this really intense experience in my life that just changed absolutely everything. And in recalling the memory of that time, what did you do then that you find yourself either consciously or unconsciously tapping into and doing now to get through this moment, if anything? Well, uh, my new performance project that I've been doing research on for the last year and a half, pretty solidly, the last two years. Um, this is the piece that's supposed to follow Sugar Rebels is called The People Preserve. And again, it's, it's a sort of apocalyptic future. And it's the time that's right before Sugar Rebels. It's supposed to be like where there's still food, but you don't quite have enough for for everyone and enough to go around. So mm -hmm. I've been doing a deep dive of research into like preppers and like food preservation. What because, are preppers? Oh, these are people who are preparing for an apocalyptic Armageddon type event. This by, is a whole community and they call themselves whole, preppers. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, there's even a Netflix, a show on Netflix that you can watch, which is very scary. But, called preppers. Yes. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I've been doing all this research about, because the premise of the performance work is that traditional ethnic food preservation and uh, techniques are going to save the people. And by preserving food, whether it's through fermentation, drying, um, you know, uh, salting, the, these traditional methods that we've been using for hundreds of years before we had refrigerators, you know, we made kimchi, right? These techniques would actually be the thing that saves us. And 
um, a, a week ago, uh, my one outing uh, since we've been in quarantine was to go to my bungalow. I've been staying at my, my partner's place because um, I'm in the process of moving. And I went to the bungalow and the things that I got were the beer making kit, <laughs> all the jars for pickling and preserving, the kosher salt for, for salting things, all of my plants, seeds. And I was like, oh my goodness. I imagined this performance to be something that I was re researching for in the future. I didn't think it was going to happen this week. Like I, I'm not ready. Like I got all my fermentation books. I got my bread making book. I got sourdough starter from my neighbor. Like I realized I, all of these things that I've been thinking about for the last two years, it's not for a performance in the future. It's for like now, like I, fermented and and you know pickled some mustard greens because they were just about to go bad and I didn't know when I was going to get to the farmer's market again because all the farmer's markets are closed I grabbed all the seeds so I can start a victory garden I guess because who knows how long we're going to be here if I can't go to the store I'm gonna have to put some seeds in the ground so I can have some vegetables I mean this is not this is not new to me I have been feeling and hearing and listening to people and thinking back to some of the folks in my life or that I've been sort of tracking and, and following in the world. And it really does feel like the last year or years, couple of years that we have been unknowingly preparing for this moment and doing things like, for example, I don't know, should we take that trip out of the country for like a month when we don't have that cushion of savings? Yeah, let's do it. We should live right now. We should live right now. Are we going to be in debt? Yeah, but let's live right now. You know, I, I, I only have my, my associate's degree. I really want to go back to school and finish it. I'm working full time. This might not be the best time, but you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it right now. I feel like I have been seeing people make big moves and changes thinking about their future, right? So I feel like the last three years under our current administration in the United States has really forced so many of us to think about what do we want to do right now because the future is so uncertain. And then the future became so incredibly uncertain. And some of us who didn't do the thing for living right now are hurting with a lot of regret and resentment mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. is building up. But those of us who were doing things to live in the now, to prepare for maybe the darkest of times, are feeling a small bit of vindication or that was ironic. No, like there's, there's some weird sort of like looking back, looking forward, looking to the now that is feeling very, um, very interesting for those of us who've been seeing, seeing the writing on the wall and seeding the, the plants that we knew we were going to need in, in this moment. And so I'm, I'm also hearing that you went back to your old place to get the things that you already had. It's yeah. not like you were going out into the stores like so many other folks who were like, I got to go get all the things I need. You went and said, let me actually look at what I already have. And yeah. I feel like that's where so many of us are actually tapping into now that we're 
a lot of us are in a shelter in place sort of, sort of hold. Um, what's it like in your house right now before the pandemic? Were you living alone? Do you have fish? Uh, do you have a family? What's happening now? Well, I was joking last week. I was like, I want to go shopping at the bungalow because I knew that at my house I had all sorts of dry goods. I have my zombie apocalypse box that I had put together, you know, ages ago. You, you actually um, put together a zombie apocalypse box, different than yeah. like an earthquake prepared box? Well, it just some apocalyptic event. I just always called it a zombie apocalypse, but now I didn't know it would be the COVID apocalypse, like a, the same, coronavirus same. apocalypse. Same, 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 but a different. Um, I have two dogs, um, and I was living alone, um, and have recently uh, decided to move in with my partner, uh, who lives six minutes away from me, not very far. Um, now, and, wait, um, yeah. how long have you been dating this person before you decided to move in? Um, pretty quickly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's very quick. I don't think, I will say, we made the decision before pandemic hit. It wasn't like, oh, crap, pandemic, now let's figure this out. It was, we had been moving on this path and then it makes so much more sense because frankly, I don't know that I can even afford my rent after like April or May. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, so you start dating this person right before yes. the pandemic, the yes. relationship starts to move very fast. Mm -hmm. And before you know it, you're living together. And at that time before the pandemic, dating someone casually and then poof, I live with you now. Um, seeing maybe oh I don't know maybe uh not very smart uh not you know really thinking about the future and then it turns out you're a savant about the future and yeah. now now you're you're living with your boo in shelter in place <laughs> with boo boo kitty and thank god I was not thinking too much into is this smart because turns out maybe the smartest thing to do is what's going to make you happy right now what yeah. does your partner do she is a firefighter. I take it all back. Um, something, <laughs> something really scares me about all this. So your, your partner is a first responder in Los Angeles to all these yeah. things. Um, so you, you picked a good one, and yet, uh, <laughs> yet now the stakes are so much higher um, for if anything should happen, yeah? Well, I mean, I think it provides a... Like I am sheltering in place because I need to close the loop on my end because my partner has to keep working because she's not sick. She's a firefighter. Um, and she works dispatch. So she answers all the 911 calls and sends out all the, the fire trucks and paramedics. And that's got to be really hard as a job on the day to day. And now it, that much it's more. A, it's a pretty traumatic, stressful job as it is. And they work uh, platoon duty, which is in 24 hour shifts. So they'll work 24 on, 24 off, 24 on, 24 off, 24 on, four days off. Um, so, so you're not really at home like so many of us who have been in relationships and now uh, you're stuck at home sharing work and life space with this person who you used to thankfully only see four hours a day and now you see them 24 hours a day. You don't, you don't have that. You, you see your partner for days at a time and then days at a time, no contact at all. So you get mm -hmm. to be in this middle ground of the single yeah. people and the people yeah. who have folks that they're living with right now and they, they get to hold and hug. It must be hard to be the receiver 
of that partner once they come home with the stress of, am I bringing something home? And mm-hmm. also all the things I know I'm bringing home emotionally in terms of uh, the, the stress and, and, and the day-to-day. Um, have you noticed a difference from the pandemic to now, what it's like when the two of I you mean, are home? I mean, the... There is a bit of a difference. I think, you know, for both of us, there was a scare at uh, LAFD a couple weeks ago where uh, the guys in, in the fire station that is connected, that, that she's at, um, had transported a COVID-19 patient unknowingly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, uh, they, they were made aware after they trans transported this patient. Yes. Yes. Um, and there was no protocol in place and everybody kind of freaked out. Um, and so we realized, even though she's not in the field, there's so many people coming and going at her station and also the emergency operations center, uh, is part of the same building. And that's been activated because we are currently in a state of emergency. So the mayor's in and out and all of the people in the city of Los Angeles who are trying to navigate and handle this pandemic situation. So the the chance for exposure, there's no social distancing, right? Like the chance for exposure are high. And, you know, when she goes to work, she sleeps at the dorm, you know, like at the fire station. And so the reason I'm not going anywhere is because if she could be exposed, she's definitely exposing me. I can't go anywhere and expose anyone else, right? Like I would be, yeah, I, I just can't. So you, you have a lot of experience right now in, in a lot of different ways, food, food, food preparation, food preservation, um, mm-hmm. having to physically and emotionally hold and make space for folks who are, who are out there in, in really high stress uh, positions of support right now with everything that's happening. What would you say are your top two to three tips that you could share with people based on your experience, right? Because you know, the question was, have you been here before? And you're like, yeah, I was preparing for this fictitious end of the world and I was learning to preserve. And so um, what would you say people should preserve right now? What tips do you have? And if we were to focus on preservation, what should people preserve right now, food or not, to, you know, help us get through this moment? Mm, I mean, one, the stories, right? Like I learned to cook from my mom. You know, she's a pastry chef. She went through Cordon Bleu, of course, but that, you know, I joke that I'm a Cordon Bleu trained chef because I learned from my mom, right? Um, That's a good one. (laughs) And thank you. Um, I've just been calling her because we can't see each other. And like, you know, I was like, what's your cinnamon roll recipe, mom? Because she's been making these cinnamon rolls my whole life. I felt nostalgic. I wanted the cinnamon roll. My uh, partner managed to score the last bag of flour at the Whole Foods in Pasadena. Sorry, everyone. And it was organic. Um, and I, you know, I was like, Oof, I want to make That hurts. <laughs> that hurts. So give a moment of silence to those folks who cannot get the organic rice. The flower. Right. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Or flower. Um, yeah. I mean, it's both like preserving the food. Like I, like when my uh, partner and I first got together, she would like throw things out. I was like, no, 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 that's still good. And she's like, what? You have a longer shelf life for everything. And I was like, yes, because it, you know, 
as, as someone who works in food, I know when food reaches its expiration and like how long you have to eat it. But I also like, you know, I grew up with a mom who came, you know, out of a, a culture of war and as a refugee. So she saved everything. And Where's so your mom I'll, from? She's from Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I'm like picking off the leaves just to get to the inner part of the vegetable to save that little vegetable. And once it starts to pass, I'm like salting it to like ferment it to actually like make pickles. Like, and I wouldn't have learned all of those things without the stories from my mom. But also I think, you know, you can save both the story and the techniques and the food itself, which I gotta say this, you know, uh, you know, mustard greens that I pickled two weeks ago are delicious in this rice porridge. I was joking, like, you know, rice porridge is kind of a, it's both a cure-all, but it's also like what they feed you in jail and like what refugees eat. And like, it's just it's rice gruel, basically. But it tastes really good with the pickled mustard on it. <laughs> so even in my time of quarantine, I'm eating really well because I have you know, I have these stories and, and techniques for, for food preservation and cooking that I've learned over time. Um, and now I'm just putting them into practice and putting them in my belly. You know, it, it occurred to me that we have as a country been here several times before and those stories and that way of cooking and that way of preserving items so that you can preserve your life gets passed on from generation to generation, whether it's, you know, through international, um, you know, migration and traveling, right? Like you say, you, you got so much of this. This is how we preserve to preserve ourselves in terms of food and things like that. You learned that from your mom who migrated here from Vietnam, um, um, but like my mom has a very particular way of like, you never know. That's always like her phrase. Well, you, you never know, right? It's like, mm-hmm. mom, why do you have so much of this in the garage? Well, you never know. And and when I once pressed her on it, uh, when I was younger, she was like, look, my mom grew up in the depression and you had to do and use whatever you could and appreciate whatever you got because you never knew if you were going to have it the next day. And I I think that out of this pandemic time, if we can continue to pass on the recipes, the food, the stories, the ways in which we have gotten through this, and if we can tap into any of the elders in our family, our parents, our grandparents, and they don't have to be alive if they left cookbooks, if you have recordings of them, if people are still around who knew them and they can share stories with you, we preserve in many ways our humanity by preserving how we live our lives. Mm -hmm. And so I have one last question for you. Mm. I want you to imagine it's 2025. It's still the end of March, but it's five years into the future. You are five years older. Your relationship is five years older. um, And you find yourself at maybe one of these gatherings where you are providing you know, food, and it's a catered event. And you find yourself saying to someone, you know, I'm really grateful for the COVID-19 pandemic, because at least now I or we have blank. How would you finish that sentence? Mm, That's a really hard one, because I think I mean, there was a meme going around. Uh, I'm on this 
eating in the time of Corona Facebook group, which is kind of fantastic. Everyone's sharing all their recipes and what they're making with the expired, you know, lentils in their cupboard. And um, it said, uh, we're all either going to come out of this uh, a little drunk or really good bakers, you know, or like really good cooks. And I was like, well, some, uh, some people are both, but you know, all of a sudden people are forced to feed themselves. And there are a lot of people out there who do not know how to cook, who have never boiled water. And as potentially one of those people, you're not judging us, are you? No, not at all. It gives you a different sense of relationship to your food when you have to prepare it yourself. And I think, you know, I've never seen so many people baking bread ever. Like this, there is <laughs> the great American bread bake off, which is exactly. actually the first challenge. It's the first challenge in the, in the British bake off show. Is it not making bread? Yeah. And like, this is like, of course, global pandemic. Can I, people are starting their own sourdough starters. Like that takes dedication, but people have time right now. And these are all the things that we outsourced, right? Like we, the supermarkets started in the 50s, right? These big giant supermarkets because it became easier to buy food than it was to make it yourself, right? Like you would buy, you would go to the supermarket and get food. You didn't go get a chicken and hang it from a tree, cut its neck, drain the blood, defeather it. It's and- a family show, O'Brien. <laughs> This is how your chicken gets to you. It doesn't come in a nugget. So, you know, this Mine currently to- does in the freezer. <laughs> it's true. And they also in dinosaur shapes. Just kidding. No, they are not, but I wish they were. Go on. <laughs> it would make things a lot happier. Um, yeah, I mean, I think if anything, you know, we stopped teaching home ec, which is a very valuable skill. Like It was. Just- It was, (laughs) it was like all those skills are like, you know, doomsday prepper skills. Like you've got to learn how to sew your own clothes because this may be the last jacket you get. If you get a hole in it, you're going to have to darn that hole. Like all of these things that, you know, like we stopped learning how to do, maybe learning how to do them again is not so bad, you know, like maybe it's great if everyone knows how to bake bread from scratch. Like, I swear, I, I have never seen so much baking. And it's also calming, but, like, there's a lot of baking going on. There's a lot of cooking going on. People do are you getting realize, creative. Do you realize that yeah. what you're essentially saying is that the best thing that might come out of this pandemic is that you could be potentially out of a job long term? You started out telling us that you are a performance artist whose art is based on food and Mm -hmm. you have clients and you cater special events and your clients, you provide food for them every week. And then full circle now, you're saying that potentially one of the best things that comes out of this pandemic is that people will learn how to do for themselves and take care of themselves. And that includes not needing to be reliant on you. Yeah. I mean, how empowering is it like to be able to cook your own food? Like I think But what that, does that do for you? Well, you know, I I won't kid you. People think it's so glamorous to be a chef and like, "Oh, you must eat the best food." You know, at the end of the night, sometimes I just eat instant ramen. 
because I'm tired because I just cooked for 10 or 12 hours to feed all these other people. And the last thing I want to do is eat anything I've cooked. I go for takeout. I go, we, uh, you know, one of my neighbors is a restaurateur and I'll make stuff for her and she'll make stuff for me. We won't eat our own stuff because we're tired at the end of the day. You just, it, so in some way, like for me, politically, I believe everybody should have those skills. Like I want to teach people to have those skills so that people can do it. I don't have the capacity to show up at everybody's house and cook them dinner, although I would love to. And I'm tired. I don't want to stand up and cook all day, every day. I love cooking. It's, it's a really powerful way to tell a story for me. And that's why I use it. Go on. It's okay. There, It's oh. called dogs in the time of uh, Zoom uh, and pandemic interviews. This is how it is right now, listeners. True. It's true. I have a feeling that the uh, mail carrier is here and she is, um, you know, going to work to protect us from that dangerous mail carrier. Um, you know, I, yeah, I would want to... I would want everybody to have those skills. I, I mean, what I do definitely like in my catering is a little different. Like not everybody makes their own sausages. I make sausages from scratch. It started as a performance, but they were really great sausages. And people said, hey, let's get these sausages out of the gallery and into people's bellies. And, you know, so I think some of the things that I do, maybe a little bit more of an advanced technique. You know, as an apprentice butcher, I worked with like nose to tail, you know, production of meats. And I don't think most people think that way about food. They, you know, which is why I always get excited when there's just like, oh, they still had the chicken feet so I can make my bone broth because other people aren't buying the chicken feet. Right. Um, So I think in some ways I might still have a job, but I'd rather if everybody were able to cook like, you know, because that. To me, it also provides a, a certain amount of joy. And I would want people to have that kind of joy. Like I was chatting with a neighbor over text and she was like, you have found the fountain of youth. I have made bread. I made banana bread. I made sourdough. Look at this pizza I made. And I've never felt better. You do this for your job. You already knew the truth. You already, you already knew the secret, the secret to life. And I was like, not as enjoyable when you do it for 12 hours a day for meager wages that are like barely minimum wage. But honestly, the things that have been getting me through this last two weeks is cooking. Like I'm, I'm, I'm planning our meals and making a whole bunch so that I can share with the neighbors and like trying to figure out like, you know, could I feed my clients again? I'm not sure that I can actually. Um, but so it, it turns out that self preservation is the ultimate preservation especially in a time of a global pandemic yeah <laughs> thank well, and you and that people should be empowered you know yes. to, to take care of themselves and you know other people there should be infrastructure in place for for that for the people who don't right yeah. thank you Aaron for sharing your insight, your wisdom, your recipes for life with us. Uh, This has been there, done that, your pandemic survival minute. This is Felicia Perez. Stay well and stay human.